morning. This morning's New Testament reading on page 38 of your pew Bibles will be Genesis 25, 19 through 34. This is the account of the family of the line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, a Ramian from Paden Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramian. Isaac played to the Lord, or prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire to the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out that was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Isaac, loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, give me some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why they called him Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? But Jacob said to Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling him his birthright to Jacob. When Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil, he ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Moving ahead to the New Testament reading on page 1516 of your Pew Bibles. It will be Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and 18 through 23. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he scattered his seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places, where it did not have much soil. That sprang up 
quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no good root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever hears, let who whoever has ears, let them hear. Skipping ahead to verse eighteen. Listen then to the parable of the sower to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown on the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. The word of God for the people of God. Lord, speak to us. We, your servants, are listening. And we know that you alone have the words of life. So, Lord, today we come to you yearning for a word. A word of hope, a word of comfort, a word of challenge. Oh, Lord, meet us where we are. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. One of the defining traits of our contemporary culture is that so many of us reside in the superficial. And you know how I see that so often? Morning, Pete. How you doing? How are you? How many of you have gone up to someone and said, hey, how you doing? And they say, oh, I'm good. And you can tell all over their face they are not good. There seems to be a fear of going deeper, of revealing ourselves, of being vulnerable, of showing what's really going on. So we put a mask on. We throw up a veneer. Hey, how are you? Fine. 
And every now and then we encounter someone when we ask the question, how are you? They tell us how they really are. How many of you have been there? How many of you feel really comfortable in that situation? Hey, how are you? Well, I'm not so good. My husband just said he wants to leave me. You want to just get out the, take two of the conversation. Hey, how are you? Good. Then you can move on. Superficiality seems to rule the day. Our culture around us is a mile long and an inch deep. And how often for us, followers of Jesus Christ, called into a communal relationship, one with the other, and of all places, the body of Christ, the church, should be the place where you go up to someone and you say, hey, how are you? And they feel comfortable enough in your presence to be honest and real. One of the reasons that I know, that I believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the stories in our scripture are good and true, is because none of these characters are sanitized for us at all. You see, if we were writing a, a, a neat story, maybe meant to communicate a particular moral truth, or if we wanted to fabricate something, the genesis of faith, this covenant that comes through the three major patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's not sanitized for us at all. These are deeply dysfunctional people. People that I'm sure, if we went up to them and we said, hey, how you doing? We might be uncomfortable with the response that we would get. Abraham, as you recall, lies about his wife Sarah, says that that is his sister, when in fact she's his wife, but out of fear he lies. He doubts the promise of God when it comes to him that he'll have an heir. Isaac has his own issues, as we looked at last week. And now we have Jacob and Esau, Abraham's grandchildren, Isaac's two sons. And in just those 15 verses that Bob read for us, we find the seeds of a deeply dysfunctional relationship beginning to take root and to blossom. Even in their mother's womb, they're jostling and fighting about. And Rebecca seems to sense something. She's distressed. So she inquires of the Lord, what's going on? Well, she receives a word from the Lord that within her are two individuals out of whom will come conflict. Two nations will emerge. She gives birth to twins who even their physical form, we don't know anything about their character yet, their personality, their interests, their likes, their dislikes, even their physical features couldn't be more different. Esau. Ruddy, he's hairy, he's red. 
And as he grows, he's an outdoorsman. He likes to hunt. Jacob, he's quiet and demure. He's cunning and crafty. He likes to stay home. He's a homebody. Esau's outdoorsy. Jacob is indoorsy. They couldn't be more different. And Esau's been out in the field. He's been hunting. He's tired. He's hungry. He comes in. He sees that. Now, how many of you have ever been in this situation? You've been so tempted by lentils. That you're willing to sell the birthright. The double portion of the father's blessing. Of his goods. The, the spiritual mantle. The man of the home. All that was conferred in the birthright. And Esau is so tempted by lentils. That he's willing to give all that up. You know, in fact, in the Hebrew... The Hebrew literally says, Esau comes in and he says, quick, red, red stuff. Red, red stuff. There's a sense that he's so famished, he's so hungry, he can't even properly ask for the thing that he wants. Quick, red, red stuff. Jacob sees an opportunity. Okay, you can have some lentils. But promise me your birthright. And so Esau confers the birthright to Jacob. Esau gets his lentils. And they part ways. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, this incident, this transfer of the birthright, this relationship, this relationship of deception, of lack of integrity, of dysfunction, marks them for close to the rest of their lives. As we've been journeying through the book of Genesis, we find that the overarching narrative, and I've said this week after week, but it bears repeating, that the organizing narrative under which we can understand the entire corpus of the scripture, of God's activity with human beings, is in terms of covenant. That God makes with Abraham. The covenant is God seeking to restore the promises of Eden to the created order. To restore a relationship of, of mutual love and care of conversation, where there's no sin, there's no sickness, there's no dysfunction, for human beings to live as God created them to live. God makes a covenant with Abraham to save and to redeem humanity, to restore God's original intent and design. And so God makes that covenant with Abraham, that promise That Abraham, I want to do this for you. I want to make you prosper. I want to give you an heir. And through that heir, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I'm going to give you land. And then it's ratified once again with Isaac. And as we'll see in a week or two, once again with Jacob. That God works in this family, dysfunctional as they are even though they lie and cheat and manipulate and use one another 
to satiate their own physical needs. God uses them. God uses them. Friends, when I come to these stories in Genesis, I take a lot of comfort in this. God used them. I mean, goodness, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These three huge figures of faith that are lifted up in the Scripture, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New, as models, as exemplars of faith and devotion. And God used even them? Maybe there's hope for you and for me. As we come to these stories and as we mine principles for our own journey of faith, we find this, that God is not looking for perfect people. You see, friends, that is one of the things that I encounter again and again. We're so often held back by what we understand as our own dysfunction, our own limitation, our own shortcomings, that we feel we cannot step into what it is that God wants for us. But yet that is to get it completely wrong. We step into the thing, and then God provides for us what we need. And yet we think we need the thing before we can step into, by faith, what it is that God has for us. As good Wesleyans, as good Methodists, we believe that God respects freedom of human choice. And don't we see that over and again in these stories in Genesis? God respects human choice. And as I mentioned last week, there's a difference in the Bible. One of the things that we must read and listen to Scripture with an eye toward is this. A difference between the prescriptive and the descriptive. Just because something is recorded for us in Scripture does not mean that God condones or sanctions it or that that is held up as something for us to emulate. And so we come to these characters and we see this Jacob and Esau, their relationship is marked by dysfunction. That does not mean that that's God's standard, that that's God's will for our relationships. And yet even as people, even recorded in the pages of Scripture, make choices that often harm them and harm those around them, God doesn't give up on them. God does not abandon them. God does not go back on the terms of the covenant that he made with them. Does God allow them to reap the consequences of their freely made decisions? Yes. But God never abandons them. He does not give up on them. He continues to work in and through them, often despite themselves. When the covenant promise comes to them, and when they choose to take fulfilling that promise into their own hands, like Abraham did, and Sarah did, how am I going to have an heir? I'm old. Here, take Hagar, have a child. For Jacob and Esau, 
Jacob and Jacob takes it into his own hands. And yet even so, God continues to work in and through them. To put it another way, Jesus told a parable. These great stories that he would often share, pulling on agrarian images and metaphors from the natural world. Jesus said that as a farmer who goes out to sow, and he sows seed, and some of it scatters on the rocky ground. Some of it scatters among thorns and weeds. Some of it falls into shallow soil, and some falls into good ground. Very rarely in the New Testament, or in the Gospels rather, when Jesus teaches in parables, does he also give the answer to the parable. And yet he does in this one. He says, this is what it means. Parables often contain within them something of the absurd. It would be absurd in the ancient world when seed was a commodity. To scatter it with such abandon. That would seem to be reckless. And yet, isn't that just like our God? never giving up on any one of us as thorny or as prickly or as weedy as we may appear. Whether we're shallow or whether we're deep, the word of God still comes to us. And how will we respond? How will I respond? What will we do with the covenant promise from the very mouth of God that comes to each one of us? Well, here's what the stories of the patriarchs tell us don't have to have it all together before it comes to you. It's going to come to you in your dysfunction, in your anger. It's going to come to you in your apathy. It's going to come to you even if you're hungry for it but have no means to sustain it. It's going to come to you in maybe your good soil where it will take root. I dare say, using Jesus' parable as a lens through which to view these stories in Genesis, that all of us at some point are rocky ground, or thorny ground, or shallow soil. And then thank God, maybe now and then we're good soil, where something gets in and we receive it. Friends, the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes down through the years, through David, through the Messiah, through God incarnate, to us here at St. Paul's UMC in Brick in 2023. God doesn't change as much as human beings do. His promises are the same. He wants to bless us. He wants to meet us where we are and prosper us. He wants to love us. Despite all of our stuff, all that we carry with us right into this building, our doubts, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our dysfunctions and our functions, God wants to meet us. His word continues to come to us. And he's not looking for perfect people. Oh, no. He's just looking for people who are willing. People who will admit that they're messed up. People who know that they'll never have it all together. And there but for the grace of God go any one of us. 
But you know what you find over and over again in these stories in Genesis? And not just in Genesis, but throughout the Bible. When God calls people and when God uses people, and when he comes to them and when he meets them where they are, often they'll find just what they need just for that day. And friends, if we can cultivate that attitude within us, then no, we don't have to be perfect. But if we can muster that trust that just for today, God will meet us where we are, then maybe we'll find in the moments of the day when life comes at us and we despair, when a relationship flares up, when a phone call comes, that there's one who's with us, that there's one who's made a promise to us, and he's there. He's loving us. He's waiting for us. He'll never let us go. That's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God whose word comes into our lives moment by moment, day by day. That's the God who's still looking for people to bless and to be a blessing through them. Friends, that's a God. That's a God who wants to bless the world through us. May we be open to his word of covenant promise. Amen.